most common price of gas in America is $3.39, down from over $5 when I took office. The previous president made a string of broken promises in places like Wisconsin, Indiana, Ohio, where promised investments in jobs and manufacturing never materialized, but layoffs and shuttered factories did materialize. On my watch, we've kept our commitments. On my watch, made in America just isn't just a slogan, it's a reality made in America. And today's announcement is the latest example of my economic plan at work. I've said from the beginning that my objective is to build an economy from the bottom up, bottom up and the middle out, an economy that rewards work, not just wealth, an economy that works for everyone. So the poor have a ladder up, the middle class can do better, and when that happens, the wealthy do very well. They don't get hurt at all. They do very well. It's a fundamental shift, and it's working compared to what the very conservative Republicans are offering these days. Let's just take a look at the facts. When I took office, the economy was in ruins. My predecessor was the first president since Herbert Hoover, not a joke, to lose jobs in the entirety of his administration, the first. Unemployment, when I was sworn in, was at 6.4 percent. Hundreds of thousands of small businesses had closed. The irony is that during the pandemic, the record number of Americans became, at the same time we lost all these small companies, the record number of Americans became billionaires in the middle of this crisis, while more than 9 million people were still out of work from the pandemic when I took office. Today, with the help of the people behind me, we're in a much better place. 10 million jobs created since we took office, a record for any administration in American history. Unemployment is at 3.5 percent, the lowest it's been in 50 years. Great job. And by the way, the food prices, the main driver of food prices, is not the price of beef and eggs, et cetera, although they're up. It's packaged goods. Packaged goods. You're going to see people not buying Kellogg's 
uh, raisin bran, which you're going to see them buy another raisin bran, which is going to be a dollar cheaper. I mean, so what's happening is there is real movement. Watch me. You know, am I slowing up? Am I don't have the same pace? And... We need the same votes we need to overrule that, to uh, reinstate uh, the, uh, the decision that was struck down by the court. It's the reason why we're sort of the viewed as ugly Americans. Today, we have the highest number of people applying to start small businesses. Vice yeah. President Harris. How's she doing? You're almost two years in. How's she doing? She's doing great. There isn't any public figure that is, you know, 60% favorable ratings. I mean, you know, most of them. And, but she is doing a great job. We are the only large country in the world that made Paxlovid, Paxlovid, where they don't teach you OGBYN. We encourage innovation when that occurs. You can look it up. You can, as my used to say, you can Google it. I think that uh, we uh, we began to. Uh, Uh, it's, uh, I, I just think that one of the things all of my everything physically about me is still functioning well <laughs> so you know and mentally too so. and by the way if they do that means not a joke everybody that's why we were defeated in in 2018, when they tried to do it, we went to 54 states. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It's the 30th of October, year of our Lord, 2022. This episode 636. Our intro, I decided to just keep it easy and just go into Mr. Freaking Commander-in-Chief. So bad. PolitiFact, for the first time ever. I've never seen this. They corrected him because he was wrong. Biden daily gaff average, the president's battling nearly a thousand. And they're actually counting him. I'm not even going to cover because you know it. This guy is a walking gaff. So today we're going to cover the media's lack of coverage of certain things and their over coverage of other. The must take over, Pelosi. But I got to start with the ebb and flow of our amazing media. This little vignette is the longest one you're going to see today. Well, other than Pelosi, because they were upset about that. But listen to the panic, the overt, oh, the Democrats are the only choice in our media jerk-off. I love politics. The media jerk off of the week. So hot. 
whatever. And then you see a woman who's raising four kids on, on 400 yeah. Street. And you go, nothing else matters to her. There's no, there's no argument other than, uh, you, other than, guess what? We're going to figure out a way to make bread more affordable to you. I mean, there's just, you know, when it's about survival, when it's about these issues that just they can't live. Now, you can scare mm -hmm. them and say it could get worse. They could take your health care away. I mean, that, that's a strategy to go. But, you know, if she is representative of a big part of the populace, and she is, and now let's even factor in people who've seen their IRAs, not a woman like that necessarily, but who've seen their RA, IRAs go down by 20, 25 percent. It's really tough. And I've come on the show and talked a lot about that. You've got to scare people and make it sh about the Republicans that are, are crazy people. But even with the pending crazy, when you can't afford to buy the stuff that you were able to f buy a year or two or three years ago, it's tough, tough sledding. I hate hate to be negative mini over here. I don't even know what the hell that means. But I am really scared about a bloodbath 10 days from now. Uh, look, I, I think Amanda Rivera, as, as you heard the canvasser say, is exactly the type of people they keep speaking to when they're doing these canvases, seven days a week for five to six hours a day. And so do you see that it is moving inexorably in the Republican direction and for the reasons that David laid out? <laughs> well, inexorably <laughs> is the word that I, that I will take, take issue with. Yes, if you're looking at the polls, it is looking like the momentum is shifting or has shifted back to the Republicans. But in this hyper news cycle that we're in now, 11 days is a very long time. Each day is an eternity. So I think we're going to see swings back and forth over time. There are two variables here that may make me hedge in terms of my false, con <laughs> false confidence here. One is the surge in early voting that we have seen in places where there's er early voting. Uh, when Democrats hear that there's a surge, there's this confidence that, oh, that's, those are our voters that are going out. But we don't know that for sure. And also I'm wondering, the other variable is abortion, the Dobbs decision. When it hit, it was an earthquake. That earthquake has subsided, but will we see it show up 11 days from now and the impact that that will have? And so, I mean, sure, right now, David, there's a <laughs> shift, but whether it's inexorable, I I'm not. But has anyone articulated to you what they think they're going to get if they have a different party in charge? Joe Biden just said it when it comes to cutting Social Security and Medicare. Are they aware of that? No, I don't think they are. And, and you know, it's, it's just a simple proposition that they feel bad about the way things are going and they just want to change change horses. But I think that uh, I think that the Democrats and the Biden administration, uh, you know, made a bet that and put all their chips on the Dobbs decision this summer. And, and I think it's unfortunate because I think they could chew and walk at the same time and have talked up a bunch of the legislative economic measures to help cushion people. From the from inflationary pressures and to talk up the the jobs outlook in this country, which is you know Stephanie is very good, and now we have a, a great growth rate. So I th I think that the Democrats could have done a better job of talking up the economy. Listen, it's it's always a tough position when you're the party in power and things don't seem to be going well. But we've got a good report today. There's there's limited time left, but I also say the voters when they think about the economic conditions, they are looking forward, not really looking at where they are right now. They're looking where they think things are gonna be. So. Democrats have a very narrow window, but if they get out the... All right, Jonathan, even Republicans who were interviewed in this article mentioned the Hunter issue, saying things got really vague when pressed for any wrongdoing by the president. And the article also mentions border security, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. How much pressure is McCarthy under to potentially follow through with this? 
An extraordinary amount. We hear frequently from members of the Republican House who say that if they take back the majority, we've heard this from Matt Gates, we heard this from Marjorie Taylor Greene and the like, they want to begin these investigations and potentially impeachment proceedings almost immediately. We should be clear, there's never been any evidence of a link between President Biden and any wrongdoing that Hunter Biden may have, been, may have committed, nor has he been charged with any wrongdoing just yet either. Uh, but this is something that does loom over this White House. And I've been reporting this week about their feelings about the upcoming midterms and some growing anxiety. They do believe, though publicly, they still say they have hope. Privately, the White House and a lot of Democratic allies do think the House is slipping away. It'd be very difficult to retain control of that body. And there's a possibility the Senate could as well. That's sort of deemed as a coin flip right now, a true 50-50 toss-up. But all it takes is the House. If the Republicans grab control of that body of Congress, they will have the subpoena power. They'll be able to rally up, carry out a number of investigations, and they could slow things down for this White House, trying to move forward. The risk, though, for Republicans, they could be guilty of overreach. It's possible the public would turn against them. Well, Peter Baker, some of this is reminiscent of another White House you covered. That was with the impeachment proceedings against Bill Clinton after Newt Gingrich took power. Where do you see parallels here? But I think Jonathan's point is right, which is that, you know, it's a challenge as well for Kevin McCarthy. Will he actually go along with the far right part of his caucus, uh, even if most of the caucus, frankly, might not want to get involved in something like this? Investigations are one thing, impeachment's another, and that's, that's a real test. Uh the war had come, however, because he was convinced that slavery had to die and democracy had to endure. And so in our own time, we have to do a, to use a popular term, we have to do an inventory. We have to decide what do we really believe? Do, are we so wedded to a partisan agenda in real time that we're, we just want our way right now? Or are just enough of us able to say, you know what, I may not agree with uh, the Democrats in this case on policy, but you know what, democracy is more important than a marginal tax rate. How confident can we be that democracy does survive? We can't. We can't be confident. We have to work really, really hard. Um, this is the gravest test of citizenship since the Civil War. And it's, this is, as President Biden might say, it's not hyperbole and it's not a joke. I thought for a long time, you and I talked about it a lot, that this was either 1932, 33, or 1968, where the institutions ultimately held. The difference is Herbert Hoover didn't say FDR stole the election and put election deniers on the ballot in 1934. Hubert Humphrey didn't do that in 1968. President Trump, former President Trump, has done that. And to a large extent, he is both a mirror and a maker of this paranoia, which is what it is. It's, it's fact-free. And I think one of, the, one of the groups that really has a moral reckoning to do are people who disagree with President Biden and Speaker Pelosi, whom we're thinking about at this hour, and the Democratic Party on policy, who say they don't appreciate Trump, but who nevertheless vote Republican because of judges and taxes and, and that sort of thing. All important, of course. But as our friend Doris Goodwin pointed out, quoting Eleanor Roosevelt, this is not an ordinary time. They're clearly kind of scared, aren't they? 
Because what has happened is usually they can lock in and get all their talking points. But Americans aren't stupid. This is just a quick vignette. This is Brooks. Sides to every story. This is Rittenhouse. Performance on the witness stand. Nauseating, melodramatic. And it seems like, okay, what does that have to do with anything? But that's the USA Today. That's how they're running it. The media is so full of fucking shit. This is a headline. The GOP's big plan to win the midterm by voter suppression to point zero six, basically a half a percent of Americans. That's going to bring them over the top. That you scared, you're scared about it makes you realize. You need that 0.5% to win elections. Because once again, there's only 5% of the country's gay, and of that, 0.06 is tranny. They, they stat, according to a new report by the law school, Williams, there are 878,300 transgender adults eligible to vote in this year, and 200,700 of them do not have IDs that reflect their correct name or gender, and those 64,800 reside in states with strict voter ID laws. What doesn't matter? You can still vote with the ID you have. Simultaneously, they're still pushing somebody who's losing by like nine points now. She's not going to win. The making of Stacey Abrams, which brings to the point that you are going to once again say she was voter suppressed because of Jim Eagle. Yeah, it's fucking record voting. I mean, record voting across the board. These are the people that are going to her events. Fuck your thoughts and prayer. Don't elect election deniers. Here's the RCP, and, I, you know, once again, I don't believe in polls. I think we've learned after 2016, polls don't mean much. But I think all along, everybody kind of knew how these things work out. It's, it's a midterm. He continues, incidentally, the historic average for midterm election going back to 1934 has a president's party losing 28 House seat and four Senate seat. That's just historic. It's just, it's the facts. And the facts are, in a normal, when things aren't topsy-turvy, you have a shitload of turnover because the American people are looking at the party in power and going, what the fuck? I mean, the dear one, Barack Hussein Obama, oh, holy is his name. He lost a shitload, record number. By the time he was done nationwide, they lost, what, 700 positions? Because Americans were like, fuck this shit. This guy sucks. All he's talking about is redistribution. So I'm going to do the fun one up front because this shit is everything I've been talking for in six years on this little show. You know, for those that are new, I started politics when we got our first computer. And it was mostly local stuff. So this is like 2003. I came back. Got two years left in the Army. I'm in a position that I'm not in charge of troops. 
Um, and I started this thing called Bitchbox. It was the local Nashville channel's way for you to go and, and complain. And it turned into a political board, you know, where you had threads. And, you know, and anybody who did it back in the day, it was like a chat room, but it was really confusing. It was hard to get back to your place. Which turned into real political boards. I was on one that had over 200,000 people that was worldwide. I'd argue with people from all over the country. And it was just kind of a hobby I got going. But when it started, it was very obvious that the internet was for lefties. It was liberal. They were all hosted by liberals. The uh, moderators were liberals. You couldn't call somebody a hypocrite. They could call you a Nazi. It pretty much was the way it was. And then we get into social media. Well, social media, other than MySpace, all right? If you think back to your MySpace days, it's always been liberal. Liberals can say and do and post and are free reign to be who they are. You're not. So this Twitter thing with Elon Musk has just reefed these poor people out of their perfect position of total anonymity to get their message out everywhere. These are the people, they got so many people working there that they don't need. The guy's running it as a private business. He can do this. But this was the first thing I saw. It's happening. And and I only picked some choice cuts. This could be a whole podcast on itself, just with the media meltdown. And it's our asshole section. Fuck you, asshole. You asshole. This is why we can't have nice things. You asshole. Are you just an asshole? Is that it? Fuck you, you asshole! You ever hear the saying, you run into an asshole in the morning, you ran into an asshole? You run into assholes all day, you're the asshole. Fuck you, asshole. You! You are such an asshole! You are an asshole. You dumb asshole! Asshole. Fucking asshole! Away from me, you asshole. Suzanne, uh, Elon Musk's whole point in his takeover for Twitter, at least his whole stated point, has been about free speech, has been about how social media and corporate America stifles free speech, and he wants to bring free speech to Twitter. He calls it a a digital town square. You're saying that, in fact, the opposite might be achieved. Why? I think it's a real risk. Look, free speech is not the Tower of Babel. It's not an environment where everyone just sounds off at will and no one is listening to each other and it's a cacophony free speech the value of free speech the reason it's protected under international law under the first amendment is because it gives us the opportunity to persuade one another to engage in a give and take to reach an audience to find better policies to sort between fact and falsehood and if you have a platform like twitter that is so overrun with disinformation that you cannot discern who to believe that you're inundated with propaganda and people trying to pull one over on you in that kind of environment the value of free speech is undercut you can't learn about something new you can't spread your idea around you can't win new followers and so i think that's the risk if he really goes through with what he originally said which was that he would do away with all content guardrails i think it would be that tower 
Elon Musk, the world's richest man, has wasted no time following his takeover of Twitter. In his first full day since buying the social media company for $44 billion, Musk fired several top executives, including the CEO and the head of legal and policy who oversaw Twitter's speech stance. He said he'll form what he described as a content moderation council before making any decisions on banned users, such as former President Trump and rapper Kanye West. I think it's going to be a free-for-all hellscape. And I, I imagine that Trump will return to unleash his vitriol. Um, others that have been banned will return to unleash uh, their vitriol. I'm always conflicted about the issue of free speech. What we really need to think about is why is it a hellscape? It's a hellscape because of the people that are on it and the vitriol that anonymously they think they can spew out there. Yeah. Well, and therein you lies know? the problem is it, social media has had a way of bringing out kind of the worst in humanity. And mm -hmm. democracy has never really been stress tested for the digital age. Because the fact that people can go to bed at night having said some of the things they've said, I've always questioned that. Yeah. The disgusting part is we ask so much of our leaders and yet the people that are inhabiting Twitter, to me, it's a digital rage room. People go there to act out the therapy they're not getting the and, and that, they're yeah. really hateful and awful and to, and I know there are some good people so shout out to those that do that but they're in the minority but there's listen this is not a free speech debate because he doesn't need to respect free speech the first amendment does not apply private. to this I think government regulation is way behind the curve on this because when you take a look yeah. at the it audience and viewers that TV networks have mm -hmm. and you know we are under FCC regulation right. yeah. this is zero regulation and so these Republicans can stop bitching about cancel culture <laughs> and how they're the victims you own everything it is almost comedic if it wasn't so scary. Their fascist tendencies. I'm here until they kick me off. There was a lot of this. There was a lot of they can just kick me the fuck off. Twitter employees protest Elon Musk plan to fire 75% of the workforce. They, they got an open form to time and they put it in here demanding everything and telling him he can't fire all of us. You just can't. Democracy. Freedom of speech. And remember, this guy was the guy that rigged the last election. Mark Elias. He, he's been rigging elections since day one. And, and the funny thing is he knows he won't get kicked off because conservatives don't kick people off. Then you got Taylor Lorenz who makes her whole living off fucking with people on Twitter. The gates of hell have been opened. Really? Hmm. Finally, some good news, people say. I'm getting more rape threats in my DMs. There was a lot of that. Rape. Um, I, I found a new way to be able to get Time articles or uh, WAPO articles just to be able to screen print them. Brian Seltzer comes in and he says, Every major paper. Reuters, Elon Musk's Twitter ownership begins with firings, uncertainty, Musk now leading Twitter, ushering in likely changes online speech. Twitter employees brace the massive layoffs. And they're paranoid because, once again, now other points of view can get out. This person, um, I got to read it off the page. My eyes are all fucked up today. What's her name? Oh, it'll be Trump News. This is CEO of Media Matters. 
Uh, it'll be like Trump News Fo- or Fox News. Fair and balanced slogan was tongue in cheek. They didn't mean that Fox itself was balanced. What they meant was that they saw the rest of the media as far too left and Fox was balanced. Now the same thing's going to happen here. We can't have that. A fair speech? New York Times WAPO tech reporter hosting a space and saying people are terrified of even posting in Slack. Because we've lost our monopoly. Rest in peace, Twitter. Really? Really, this is this is what we're going? Welcome to hell, Elon. There was just so much. Did I get that welcome? There's a welcome to hell. Yeah, that's so good. Racist tweets quickly surfaced after Musk closed Twitter deal. This was Washington Post. They didn't prove it. They didn't even show that it was real. They just said it. Because, of course, it's the way they look at it. Understand, I was going to do the, I'll do our lighter fare now, but this was for lighter fare, and here are two SNL skits from last night. Understand, people were really pissed off about the second one. surging with a strong closing message from candidates who have gone from underdogs to stars of the Republican Party. But how? Tonight, we talked to three of them. First, Senate candidate from Georgia, Herschel Walker. Yeah, hello, Judas. Um, My name is Herschel Walker, Texas Ranger, and I'm running for president of the United Airlines. Next is Pennsylvania's Republican Senate candidate, Dr. Oz. Hello, Judy. My Pennsylvania Phillies are in the World Series, and I just had a delicious Philadelphia cheese and steak. Yum. And also joining us is Arizona's Republican candidate for governor, Carrie Lake. Great to be with you, Judy, on your sweet little show full of lies. Okay, well, all three of you have been gaining in the polls the past few weeks, despite none of you having any political experience. That's absolutely right. of it. <laughs> Mr. Walker, you're now within three points of Senator Raphael Warnock. Why is your support growing? Uh, and that's where I don't know. Uh, see, <laughs> the whole world is a mystery, ain't it? For, for example, uh, a thermos, it keeps the hot things hot, but also the cold things cold. <laughs> but my question is, how do we decide? <laughs> so we're going to be looking into that very much. Well, you've had a tough campaign. A second woman has now claimed you paid for her abortion, and your ex-wife has said you once held a gun to her head. Why are millions of Georgia residents still voting for you? Gas. <laughs> OK, gas prices are high, but is there more to it than that? Well, of course there is. I'm fine. Look, if you want to get on a jumbotron at the Falcons game, you don't throw on a cardigan and start making sense. You take your shirt off and you shake your belly around. That's what I'm doing. And people love me, no matter what. Like the great Trump Donald said, I could pay for an abortion in the middle of Fifth Avenue and not lose any voters. And that's a promise from me, Herschel Wickapotamus. Very well. Now, Dr. Oz, you've caught up to your opponent, John Fetterman, recently, surprising many in the media. 
Yeah, I sure have. Uh, let's remember, I was a long shot, Judy, but I always told myself, you can win this election if you're honest, if you're fair, and if your opponent has a debilitating medical emergency. <laughs> so we're very lucky. Got it. Miss Lake, you've pulled ahead of your Democratic opponent, Arizona Secretary of State Katie Hobbs. Yes, I have. Now, you were a local news anchor and a Democrat for many years. Correct, yeah. And yet you're gaining voters. Why? Because I'm normal, Judy. I'm just a regular hometown gal, constantly in soft focus and lit like a 90s Cinemax softcore. <laughs> and frankly, I've just clicked with many of the wonderful, terrified elderly people here in Arizona, the Florida of the West. Also, I'm a fighter. In my life, I've sent back over 2,000 salads. And I'm not afraid to do the same thing with democracy. Very well. Now, one of your main campaign issues is the denial of the 2020 election. Can you media types just get over the one thing I've made the center of my campaign for months and months? Arizonans want to talk about the issues that affect them, like crime in New York or crime in Detroit. And the most pressing issue, Drag queen story time. Men dressing as loud, sassy women introducing children to the joys of reading? Uh, not on my watch. Hey, can you pass it to me, please? I'm open. Listen, uh, Judas, we got babies in school out here identifying as a Pokemon, okay? And uh, that's crazy, you know? My son is a boy. Last time I checked by text. You know, he certainly ain't no Snorlax, and that's just science. Um, excuse me, I'm getting all worked up right now. My head is getting very, very hot. Uh, Judy, we need to take care of ourselves, and I recommend the miraculous alpha-cyclodextrin to help them lose 30 pounds in just one calendar day. Great. Now, Miss Lake, you have proposed some big changes to local voting laws. If you become governor, do you promise to make sure everyone's vo vote counts? Judy, I'll make it easy. If the people of Arizona elect me, I'll make sure they never have to vote ever again. Now, some people are saying that kind of election denialism contributes to violence. Violence? What do you mean? Like crazy-eyed men in tactical gear waving assault rifles next to ballot boxes? That's just Arizona, baby. Look, nothing I say can be incendiary because I say it in TV voice. So jump on into Cary Lake, Arizona, because it's placid and serene on top, but underneath, it's a whole lot of Giardia. And Miss Lake, thank you for being here, and thank you to Dr. Oz and Herschel Walker. yippee ki -yay, and go Halloween. When we return, J.D. Vance asked President Trump for money to go get an ice cream. And live from New York, it's Saturday night! I'm gonna get some more popcorn. You want some? Sure. Sometimes a familiar face can be the most terrifying. In political news, President Biden has said he intends to run for re-election in 2024. You trusted him once. I know he's a little old, but he could still win, right? He beat Trump. But can he beat DeSantis? I don't know. I don't know! Can you trust him again? He's 79 now. Elections in two years. 
So that means... When it feels like nothing's going right... Gas prices are still kind of high. Even though it kind of is. Why are we so worried? He's done so much. Student debt relief, holding NATO together, infrastructure bill. But he fell off his bike once! <laughs> According to this article, he's not actually going to run in 2024. He's just saying he is to present a united front before the midterms. Oh, what a relief. Yeah. I mean, I love the guy, but he did his part. But if Biden's not going to run... Who will? Just when you thought the terror was over. I, I don't know, I don't know, Kamala! Oh, wake up! You realize it's just beginning. Oh, there's gotta be someone! Cory Booker! He's corny! Mayor Pete! Listen to yourself! From the producers of Smile and the Twisted Minds of Morning Joe. <gasps> Superstar who can go all the way. Sometimes your best option. I'm with her. I'm with her. Is the one you fear the most. There has to be someone. Uh, Biden, maybe? Are we back to Biden? Yeah, I, I like Biden. Biden. So Biden? Biden's great. Right? He's Biden. 2020 Part 2 2024. Coming in 2023. I watched that show. It wasn't funny. There was no laughter. I could find nothing to laugh about. It was total fucking garbage. But the cold open's always bashing with conservatives. And they're fine with it. But when they finally go, this is the fact, Jack. You're going to have an 81 fucking mentally unfit president. And... Who else? Bernie again? It's like Fetterman. Shit surfaced to him talking about Republicans. You can tell it's coherent when he's got a good script. But I don't have a section on it today, and I'm kind of stalling before we go into the, the, the beautiful Pelosi shit. Here's Greg Gutfeld bashing him, and then it'll be followed by Fetterman talking about Republicans. Fetterman gets help from media fluffers, and Joe wastes gas while America suffers. Oh, you're getting there. <laughs> After Pennsylvania State Senate candidate John Fetterman bombed at his debate with Dr. Oz, a desperate media is trying to turn him into a hero for the disability movement. Ooh, wow. <laughs> that just made one, one audience member sick to her stomach. <laughs> yes, he's now the Rosa Parks of lumpy white men who hide their condition to fool voters into thinking he was fine. A slew of positive spin headlines paint a rosy picture of Fetterman's heroism and bravery when all he did was bark out confusing half-sentences. Quote, a lens of empathy. Debate highlights ableism in politics. Pat Fetterman can do for disability what Obama did for race. Say what? See, because when all else fails, use identity politics. But MSNBC's Lawrence O'Donnell went a step further. 
Franklin Roosevelt and Winston Churchill had the good fortune to serve as the highest elected officials in their countries long before television news could cover their every move. Franklin Delano Roosevelt believed that it would be painful to watch him. Painful to watch quickly became an oft-repeated phrase on Twitter last night during the Pennsylvania Senate campaign debate. Uh, he was... He was painful to watch. <laughs> but he has a point. I mean, Fetterman does have something in common with Churchill and FDR. You know, none have made a coherent statement in a long, long time. Remember, Barack Obama won two terms in a, in a commanding fashion. Right. So the, the, there, there hasn't been some massive sea change. And of course you have nationalism and racism, but you've always had that as, as part of the Republican base. They have been able to rule everything. Here is Stop Ben Shapiro from speaking at the University of Michigan. It, it goes to everything we talk about. Literally, folks. We complain that it's a perversion. This is a teacher. And in a quick little vignette today, because I'm trying to take down all the videos of all this shit. Here, here are just a few of the transgender shit that we complain about and the Rolling Stone says we're trying to stop these people from voting. Hey, Blue, look at all these families. Hi, families. It's time for a pride parade. Families marching one by one, hurrah, hurrah. Families marching one by one, hurrah, hurrah. This family has two mommies. They love each other so proudly. And they all go marching in the big question is about coming out to students and as a teacher who has worked with elementary middle and high school aged students I think I can help you out a little bit here the first thing you should do is just keep your language simple because this teacher specifically is working with elementary school kids you want to use language they're going to understand based off experiences they have just say something simple like this here's what I said I used to be a boy but that made me hurt it made me feel uncomfortable so I went to a doctor we talked now I take medicine and I'm a girl Boom. There you go. That's all you really need to know. It's not a perfect explanation. If you're not on hormones or you don't want to take hormones, it's not the best, but it can be a really good starting point. If you're not on hormones, I would just say that your doctor and you decided to do things like this and it's going to be what's good for you to make you happy. Kids understand that. Generally speaking, kids like making people happy, you know? Now, you may see some purpose in going more in depth later on, but starting with that foundation is good for people. That said, before you do any of this, the most important thing you should do is talk with your administrator. Hey TikTok, I need your help with something. And it's really important to me and it's gonna be a big deal. I'm coming out at work as trans to everyone, including all my students who I've known some of them for a couple of years now. But I'm gonna be honest, I don't know how I'm going to address their question. I'm not good at this stuff. I'm going to ask them to start calling me Miss Ella and to use the proper pronouns. But knowing kids, especially elementary school age kids, they're going to ask questions and I want to make sure I have answers or the correct answers. The best answers. Some sort of answers. So if you have any resources on it or, or anything, please let me know. If you've done it, if you've have anything. I'm looking for advice. Comment, stitch, whatever it is. Just let me know. I need help. And for anyone that gives me any, I just would like to say 
thanks in advance, because this is going to be stressful, and I always like to be prepared. So, we'll see. I'll give you all updates. They have carte blanche to say whatever they choose to say. For racist stuff, here's just two examples. Two examples. You have Tiffany Cross and you have Stephen A. Smith saying that he doesn't make enough money. It's because, look, why is it affirmative action when it comes to people of color, but legacy admissions are something that, you know, gets welcomes, really, by some of these universities? I'd hear from both of you on that. Yoga, will start with you, Dan. Well, exactly. Look, not just legacy admissions, but all of these so-called normative criteria, like test scores, we know that standardized yeah. tests, not only do they privilege family income and what have you, but they also literally underpredict talent and merit among students of color. Yeah. So schools are depriving themselves of a whole swath of talented students of color if they only rely on standardized tests. Yeah, and the biggest ben beneficiary of affirmative action, white women. Mm. So I'm curious your thoughts on, on legacy admissions. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, like if Edward Bloom was looking at ways that might help or have an impact on Asian Americans, the fact that so many Asian Americans or immigrants don't have the possibility of legacy admissions might be something to look at. Yeah. But remember, this is also the guy that brought us Shelby County versus Holder that yeah. struck down a chunk of the Voting Rights Act. Like, this is all part of a broader white supremacist agenda that they're trying to bring through their courts, and now they can because they've wrested control of the Supreme Court. Nothing has changed over the last 40 years in terms yeah. of the precedent and the law. It's just the fact that the justices are different. I we are still black in this country. We don't trust this country in terms of meritocracy always. We know the bottom line is, is that just like women are underpaid compared to male counterparts, blacks are underpaid compared to white counterparts. And so when you look at it from that perspective, and of course, I have people look at me, I'm not talking about me, even though I got news for you, I am underpaid compared to some people on television and what they get paid, but that's a subject for another day. I ain't apologizing for that to a damn soul. I am underpaid having... If it's not that... Sorry, that was disgusting. Racist shit by cross that nobody else could say. Nobody could say this shit. It is the unadulterated abortion... It's okay to kill your baby in the, the fucking college. It's good to have pornography and CRT as Colbert and CBS portray right here. So for me, when I first read it, I just thought, oh, this will be such an, a great way to honor a little piece of history yes. of these very revolutionary women in Chicago who pre-Roe, um, you know, provided really caring and safe abortion care. When, at a time when so many women put themselves in very dangerous, desperate situations in order to not be pregnant. And um, obviously with Dobbs, we in so many places in America are, are, are getting back to that, 
moment, and yes. there are real Janes everywhere now. Everywhere, you know? it's, it's almost eerie to me and surreal yeah. that it's happening at this particular time, while it's so relevant for women today. How do you hope the movie will be received? What do you want people to be the takeaway? Because I, I never heard of it either, and I thought, oh, what a nice piece of history. And now we're looking at it's staring us in the face, and it's scary. Yeah, it's 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 now no now it's recent history. Yes. Um, you know, we we really depoliticized abortion health care in the film as much as possible, really tried to recenter it as the health care that it is. Um, my character, I think, is really relatable. Joy is a woman who never Good thinks goodness. she'll have to seek out abortion health care, is pretty judgmental of people who do, yeah. um, you know, and really opens up. This experience opens up a, a greater sense of her empathy, I think, and, and her um, ability to have a better understanding of a path that people walk, whether you're going to walk it or not. And yeah. I think for me, that's what I want people to take well, away from the movie. The experience was horrible because the doctor was such a jerk. He was so cold. <laughs> yeah. So you go from someone who's laying on that on that on that gurney. With, with him not caring about what you were going through, yeah. then performing the abortion. Yeah, that was real, that, that really happened. The women, um, one of the things I love about the film too is I think there's a big mythology around abortion healthcare is that it's really scary and you might die. I mean, they, there's literally activists that yell that at women who are going into clinics. Yeah. And the fact of the matter is that an abortion uh, is safer than most dental uh, experiences. It's safer than a colonoscopy. Um, In the movie, they really? describe it as like uh, scooping up pumpkin seeds. You have to, you have to like Dr. Oz has had his problems running for Senate in Pennsylvania. For one thing, he lives in New Jersey. <laughs> also, he came out super anti-choice in the primary, and when asked about that last night, he accidentally said what he meant. Here's who Oz thinks should be involved in making medical decisions for women. As a physician, I've been in the room when there's some difficult t conversations happening. I don't want the federal government involved with that at all. I want women, doctors, local uh, political leaders. Oh, so close. <laughs> no one, no one should have to discuss health care with their local political leaders. Especially if they live in one of those really small towns where the local mayor is a dog. <laughs> Making this decision was rough. But I believe life begins at squirrel. <laughs> Dixon is another anti-choice MAGA Republican. Well, it turns out that's very unpopular in Michigan. So she's focused her campaign on another issue entirely. And it came up again last night. What I've heard from parents across the state is inappropriate content in school libraries. If you have material in your school that is something that you can't read to a child at a bus stop because you would be arrested because it is pornographic, then it should not be in our classrooms. Ah, yes. <laughs> Childhood. We all have happy memories of bedtime when you get in your PJs, grab a glass of water, head on down to the bus stop for a bedtime story. <laughs> from a drifter named Shambles. <laughs> he doesn't just do the voices, he hears them. <laughs> and Tudor, sir, happy memories. Happy, happy memories. It seems like that's an important thing to know about your country. And yet, 14 states, 14 states of the United States have attempted to ban 
or banned the 1619 project from being taught in public schools. What's your theory on why there has been such a strong backlash in some parts of the country? I think we are in uh, obviously a deeply polarized society and that conservatives have really understood that the oldest divide in America is the race is the race divide. And so uh, if you want to stoke division, if you want to win politically, um, scaring people into thinking that their children are learning a history that's teaching them that they're the oppressor or that you can't have heroes if they're white, I think it's been a very uh, effective propaganda campaign. But I, I think it should go without saying that regardless of how anyone feels about the 1619 Project, and trust me, most of the people trying to ban it have never read it, it's very clear, um, <laughs> that uh, no matter how you feel about it, a free society doesn't ban books. A free society does not do that. And now that they lose Twitter, they're scared of that. I mean, when you can say whatever you want, you're never held accountable. There's never any pushback. Nobody's going out and boycotting shit because we're too busy fucking working. Or in my case, being fucking sick. Why would you want to give that up? Ben Shapiro. They don't want him speaking. Why would you want him speaking? People might actually realize, oh my God, what he's saying is is true it's a hundred percent true new york times this week democrats say racism is the real messaging in gop crime ads because they don't want to face that oh yeah yeah there's a lot of crime and then when it does finally hit them with this Paul Pelosi, before I play a single gnashing of teeth soundbite, that's where he lived. He's an illegal from Canada. And this is day three or two of them still trying to make this a thing and say it's conservative rhetoric. It's conservative. It's conservative. He's not a conservative. He lived in a hippie commune. BLM and pride flags in the front. And when have you ever seen a scene where somebody breaks in from the inside and both people are holding ha hammers? Obviously, what you said in the opening is exactly right. No one should condone this violence. But I want to take people back as someone whose family has been attacked by these ra raging lunatics. You know, where were the Democrats and Pelosi when people were outside my home with my young daughters in the home and my wife by themselves? Where were they when they targeted my 98-year-old grandmother? Where were they when they when Antifa showed up on my family's farm? This is all stuff that's been, that the Democrats have continued to allow to happen, whether I could go into the Supreme Court justices' homes, et cetera, et cetera. Now, look, I am saying clearly, because you know how the fake news will take this out of context, what they did to Paul Pelosi is inexcusable. And, and look, there's still more that we need to find out right now. Uh, you know, look, I've heard everything from the guy was a nudist, uh, born in Berkeley, some crazy guy on drugs in his underwear. I don't know what the hell's going on, but we always condemn violence, no matter if it's against elected officials or everyday Americans, period. No, you're right. You're absolutely right. And because those of us on the conservative right have integrity, you're, you're right to point out that Merrick Garland knew that it's against federal law to, to protest against Supreme Court justices, and he didn't enforce the law, preferring 
the violence occur, I would imagine. And then, of course, we know about the assassination attempt against one conservative Supreme Court justice. So again, I think this has got to be an American thing. We have got to condemn all violence, all criminal activity, all the time. And it shouldn't be yeah. contingent on politics whatsoever. And sadly, yeah. some other folks up and down the cable dial can't say that. They won't condemn certain violence. We'll condemn it all here. San Francisco police have identified the suspect as 42-year-old David DePap. He's a man with a history of spreading far-right conspiracy theories on Facebook and elsewhere on the internet about COVID vaccines, the 2020 election, and the January 6th insurrection. Sources say he was not known to Capitol Police or in any federal threat database. It is hard to ignore how much of the suspect's rhetoric today echoes what we heard from rioters who stormed the Capitol. Congressman Adam Kinzinger of Illinois, one of the two Republicans on the January 6th House Committee, tweeted today, quote, I want to be clear, when you convince people that politicians are rigging elections, drink babies' blood, etc., you will get violence. This must be rejected. This is why the January 6th Committee is so important, unquote. And Democratic Congresswoman Karen Bass of California went even further. 
It just shows us the danger that our democracy is in. And it also just makes me angry thinking of my Republican colleagues who attempt to minimize what happened January 6th and who ignore the hate speech, the violent speech that is going on right now. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell today strongly condemned the assault on Twitter. House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy's office says he reached out to the speaker's office to check on Paul Pelosi. This horrifying act of violence today, I wish I could tell you it was an outlier. It's not. It is the inevitable product of a poisonous political climate where unchecked lies and hate-filled dehumanizing rhetoric combine to create a, a perfect storm of political violence. Last year, an astounding 34% of American adults said it's justifiable for citizens to take violent action against the government, according to a Washington Post University of Maryland poll. No public figure seems safe. Capitol Police have tracked more than 9,000 threats in 2021 against the people and places that department is charged with protecting. Just today, a Pennsylvania man pleaded guilty to making threats to kill Democratic Congressman Eric Swalwell and his staff. Earlier this month, Republican Senator Susan Collins warned, quote, I wouldn't be surprised if a senator or House member were killed. What started with abusive phone calls is now translating into active threats of violence and real violence. Those abusive phone calls are now a regular part of life for Congressman Kinzinger and others. Go get your wife, go get your kids. We're gonna get you. We know where you live. We're coming to your house. Gonna get you, Mike. You're gonna swing for f***ing treason, you communist Democratic Congresswoman Debbie Dingell of Michigan has also received voicemails that would make your stomach churn. She shared this one with CNN last year after former President Trump singled her out. I hope your family dies in front of you. I pray to God if you've got any children, they die in your face. As much as Donald Trump is part of the problem here, you need to know these threats and horrific acts are not only from the right. Back in 2017, Republican Congressman Steve Scalise was nearly killed after being shot during an attack on a congressional baseball game. Supreme Court justices are also under threat. This summer, a man traveled to D.C. from California armed to the teeth with the stated intention of killing Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. Also not safe, governors, candidates for governor. This week, three men were convicted of all charges after supporting a plot to kidnap Michigan's Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer. In July, a man jumped on stage to try to stab with a sharp object Congressman Lee Zeldin, a Republican candidate for New York governor. To get some perspective of how bad it can get, let's turn back to one of the most tumultuous and perhaps darkest chapters in American political history. On November 22nd, 1963, Viewers who turned into CBS were met by this chilling report. From Dallas, Texas, the flash, apparently official, President Kennedy died at 1 p.m. Central Standard Time. Only five years later, April 1968, Walter Cronkite again. Good evening, Dr. Martin Luther King, the apostle of nonviolence in the civil rights movement, has been shot to death in Memphis, Tennessee. Think about that, the leader of the civil rights movement preaching the importance of nonviolence, murdered in cold blood. Only two months later, 
June 1968. We've heard an alarming report that Robert Kennedy was shot in that ballroom at the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles. These are the extremes, political violence taking the lives of the nation's leaders. We reference them as a point of caution. We're at a moment right now of extreme polarization where calls for violence are leading to actual violence. We cannot pretend that these are all isolated fringe events. There are people in mainstream accepted society, elected officials, TV anchors, others, who have been creating a permission structure that is helping to open the door to this violence. A permission structure created when they dehumanize opponents or smear them or belittle or make light of acts or threats of violence against their perceived foes or spread conspiracy theories. And while it might feel as though the political divides of the present are too vast to bridge, now is the moment that we all need to stop and think about our common humanity, or at the very least, the basic golden rule and how you want to be treated. Political violence in America is no longer a threat, it's a reality. Two years ago, a lawyer dressed up like a FedEx delivery man and showed up at the New Jersey home of U.S. District Judge Esther Salas. Her son Daniel, celebrating his birthday that day, ran to open the door. That lawyer opened fire. Daniel was killed. His father was shot three times, but survived. What's your reaction to that, Congressman? Wolf, we have to come together as a country and turn down the temperature. I mean, it was not just the speaker who was the subject of January 6th attacks. It was Vice President Pence. It was Republican members of Congress, Republican Senator Ted Cruz. People were talking about going through his office. We've got to come together and say enough of this. You know, there's a scene from The Godfather where after uh, the Marlon Brando son uh, is killed, he says with the other families, let's knock this off, enough of the violence. We frankly just need a moment in Congress to say enough with this kind of rhetoric. As we say, enough is enough. We've learned that the House Republican leader, Kevin McCarthy, did reach out today to the Speaker, and the Senate Republican leader, Mitch McConnell, said he is, quote, horrified and disgusted by this, by this news. Uh, are you satisfied with the response uh, today from your Republican colleagues, some of whom, have, as you know, have, have themselves actually trafficked in some of these conspiracy theories? Well, I appreciate Senator McConnell's statement. I thought it was strong. I hope uh, Leader McCarthy will issue a strong statement. But I think we need President Trump to issue a strong statement. And I would like to see every member of Congress, every senator, put out a clear, strong statement uh, from every faction of every party. Uh, this is a time that the country should be unified and say violence is absolutely unacceptable. Wolf, the violence today against the speaker could be targeted against someone in another party uh, uh, in the next day. Uh, it's unpredictable, and we all need to be opposed to it. Yeah, good point. All right, Congressman Rokana, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Wolf. I mean, really, folks, the, the way they have carried this out, do we remember this? You remember Rand Paul? These are actually tweets that I've been putting out all day yesterday. We're his neighbor. Do you remember this speech? Because I do. I remember his speech. I remember what he said that everybody was evil. 
Igor Volsky suggests GOP ads featuring Nancy Pelosi. This is the, we're going back to the Palin stuff where it's well they had a target and so somebody shot near that target so let's do it. Terry Moran carried it and then Igor Volsky, the assailant attacked Paul Pelosi was searching for Speaker of the House the intruder and confronted the Speaker husband. Where is Nancy? Vilify Nancy Pelosi and normalize political violence has consequences. The National Republic Congressional is featuring 12 spots on Pelosi. Last month, the congressional leadership had 23 spots. 2022 is eighth election cycle, which Pelosi was the defining aspect of the GOP messaging. So we made a liberal go after it. Alex Tribe. Someone, oh, where the hell is it? Spokesperson Drew Hamill said the assailant is in custody. The motivation of the attack is under investigation. Nancy Pelosi was not the resident of the time. Alex, our Lawrence tribe. This is nightmarish. I wish Paul Pelosi a full and rapid recovery. The far right has normalized the use of violence, even against the families of public officials with whom everybody might disagree. This absolutely must stop. Well, I'm going to let two people talk about it. Here's uh, Kennedy, and I rarely play him because I don't like him, but uh, old what's-his-name from the five. Like clockwork, the media is reporting that this is January 6th on the West Coast. Before the assault occurred, according to this source, the intruder confronted Mr. Pelosi in their home shouting, where is Nancy? Where is Nancy? Debbie Dingell, that's what the intruders going through the hallways on January 6th were shouting, Nancy, Nancy. This is part of the January 6th insurrection toxicity that has infected the, the brains of people around the country. So the nude homeless Canadian drug addict with a rap sheet a mile long who makes hemp bracelets in Berkeley is a January sixer. I think we may be getting a little bit ahead of ourselves here. We wish Paul Pelosi a speedy recovery. We feel terrible for him and our heart goes out to Nancy and their family. And we want to see this hammer man locked up for 20 years to life at least. But the media ignored the Black Lives Matter and Antifa riots. Remember, called them justified and mostly peaceful. Never blame Bernie when a Bernie bro shot up Steve Scalise. A left-wing assassin nearly took the life of Brett Kavanaugh after the SCOTUS leak, and Democrats still didn't want to add protection to justices' homes. A Republican canvasser just had his jaw broken, and the media blamed him. And when Rand Paul got his ribs cracked by his crazy neighbor, it was one of MSNBC's favorite stories. New details today on the incident that left Senator Rand Paul with six broken ribs. This might be one of my favorite stories. Even Pelosi's daughter said Rand Paul deserved it. <laughs> the Democrats have been telling us for years that crime isn't a big deal. And if you talk about it, you're racist. We're dealing with actual crimes, those eight uh, homicides, and we're dealing with the perception of fear that people are feeling. In Republican politics, the issue of crime and the issue of immigration have long been proxies for race, for playing the race card. I also want to make sure that this hysteria, you know, that this doesn't drive a hysteria. The perception in this case counts more than the actual rapes. Part of the Republican playbook, as you well know, is to point a finger at large, diverse cities and say large, diverse cities are lawless. What we see here is the same old playbook, which is about coded and racist messaging. The Democrats and the media have been ignoring the crime wave and only cover it when Nancy Pelosi's husband's attacked. 
Where has the media and the Democrats been while thousands of Americans have been attacked? People are being hit with hammers every day. People are being pushed into subways, slashed, shot in cold blood. But the media focuses on this one single crime to pin it on Republicans? Come on. The Democrats defunded the police in San Francisco. The Democrats' sanctuary policies prevented the guy from being deported. The Democrats want to send social workers to welfare checks instead of cops. If they had sent a social worker here, both Paul and the social worker would probably be dead. People in San Francisco are smashing people in the head every day, and they get bailed out. And they don't get hit with attempted murder charges. Maybe they get sentenced to two years of restorative justice. But they throw the book at this guy because Paul's married to a powerful woman. It's not right. Every victim should be treated equally, and so should every perp. The crime wave has finally come to Nancy Pelosi's house. Hopefully, our political leaders can wake up and say enough is enough. The suspect is in custody. He faces several charges, including attempted homicide and elder abuse. Police are still working to determine a motive, but neighbors and people who knew him describe him as having some truly bizarre behavior. The suspect seemed at times to be out of touch with reality, they said. He had trouble with eye contact. Uh, they said that they cut off contact with him. One of them, he was house-sitting for them. She said he was basically creeping her out, and she didn't want to be in touch anymore. So, um, you know, so the big question here is whether this is reflective of political violence that's happening in the country or whether it's reflective of serious mental health issues in the country and violence in general across the country or some combination of both. Kennedy? I, I think you hit on it, and I think it is a combination of both, because I think where we're at, you know, the president promised to bring down the tenor of political discourse in this country. That hasn't happened. People are more divided. Uh, there are people who see words as violence, and there are people who it's very easy for them to cross the line and commit acts of violence like this because they are moved by their politics. When you combine that kind of rage, that sort of systemic cultural rage that we have right now that, that hasn't calmed down with untreated mental illness, that's when you have things like this happen. And for anyone, whether it's a Supreme Court justice, the Speaker of the House, or anyone who holds visible elective office, it's a really scary time. And especially in California, where so much money goes to social services, they're not doing it right. They really have failed the mentally ill, especially those who are violently mentally ill, in that state. And, and they have not created appropriate systems to identify and treat people like this. And it's really sad that after the fact, we're hearing about all of these symptoms when, you know, with all that money and all of those resources, someone like this should have been identified and treated before something this tragic happens. If there's any normalizing of violence, it has been the left since 2000. Bush's inauguration. You can go back to Occupy Wall Street. You can uh, uh, go back to the World Trade Organization. You can go back to 2004 inauguration. You can go back to frickin' Trump's inauguration. You can do the whole summer of fucking love where the White House was breached. And the media didn't talk about that. They talked that they used CS, which was false. They didn't. We have a problem with truth. Truth is always not a priority for the media. 
or this is America today is literally a CBS thing that the economy is great. And it's a long vignette, but I'm starting to listen to Matt Walsh. And he had a really good segment on the truth. Enjoy. It's time for the last soundbite. Like the media say when they are pushing fake liberal agenda stories. This is America. Today, that the U.S. economy rebounded slightly in recent months. It snapped two straight declining quarters, growing at an annual rate of 2.6% from July to September. But there are still troubling signs. The average interest rate for a 30-year fixed mortgage now tops 7% for the first time in more than 20 years. Turn next year to the economy tonight. President Biden in Syracuse, New York, celebrating the new numbers on the economy today. Unexpected good news on GDP, the gross domestic product, of course, a measure of goods and services produced increasing 2.6% this last quarter. The president saying the deficit now cut by 1.4 trillion this year. The president in Syracuse to highlight a pledge by the U.S. company Micron to invest up to $100 billion there to build semiconductor facilities in central New York, creating jobs and making those chips in America. And Terry, Americans, of course, still dealing with inflation, but these were encouraging GDP numbers today. Uh, the president obviously trying to make the case for voters here with 12 days until the midterms uh, to stay the course that he points to these GDP numbers saying this is the right policy uh, and that uh, a change in course would not be good at this point, but it's a tough case to make. A surprise rebound. The U.S. economy grew from July to September. The nation's gross domestic product posting 2.6% growth after shrinking in the first half of this year, fueled by consumer spending, exports, and a strong job market. The president in Syracuse, New York, urged voters to reject a Republican takeover of Congress. Good evening to you, Brett. The president is in Syracuse today, touting his administration's investments in U.S. manufacturing and praising today's economic report. But the data is not what it seems on the surface. Great economic report today, the GDP report. Things are looking good. At first glance, today's GDP report suggests the U.S. economy is turning around after two consecutive quarters of negative growth. But a closer look shows the 2.6% growth was driven by fluctuations in international trade, not reflecting the underlying health of the economy, and increased government spending. Economists think both will drop off in quarter four. Moreover, consumer spending is slowing as inflation climbs faster than wages. Moody's chief economist with a much different take than the president. If you take a step back and look at GDP, it's gone. What they're saying, they know what's on the horizon, and uh, that's why they're becoming so desperate and frantic. So this weekend, we saw Joe Biden promising a bunch of TikTok stars that he would uh, pay for their abortions and make sure that every state in the union is sexually mutilating children. This is what democratic desperation looks like. This is what they do when they're scared, they double down on their infanticide and child castration advocacy. Also, even more indicative, the Democrats are warning that the coming Republican takeover of the House and possibly the Senate as well will, will, will spell the end of democracy in America. So Max Boot writes for The Washington Post, quote, if the current trends hold up, Republicans are likely to take over at least the House and quite possibly the Senate too, along with many state offices. 
This is how democracies die, both at home and abroad. So democracies die when voters participate in them, says the Washington Post. So by voting, you are killing democracy. In a similar way, uh, you might die of thirst by drinking fresh water or drown by sitting on dry land. MSNBC had a similar message last night. In fact, they took it a step further. According to Joy Reid and her panel of guests who all together with their brain power combined equal the IQ of a moderately intelligent meerkat, if voters, they say, vote for Republicans, they are essentially Nazis. Listen. Matthew, we talk about this all the time. Democracy on the ballot. It's not just a slogan. You know, I mean, we're talking about women literally losing agency over themselves. Donald Trump has said, you know where he's going to challenge the election? Already in advance, he says he's going to do it. Philly. That's a dog whistle, right? I mean, it's not even being hidden. At this point, it's just fascism in the open. And what scares me is that I'm not sure everybody minds. You know, I think there are some people who will just sit back and let it happen thinking it won't be that bad. And that, to me, is almost well, more dangerous than the radicals. Well, I mean, I'm not calling, uh, I'm not going to say that, you know, the GOP are Nazis at this point or whatever, but it certainly sounds very familiar to what happened in Germany, which is a bunch of citizens, Adolf Hitler gets a third of the vote. Nobody thought it could happen there. They kind of went along because they said he was going to solve the economy and fix inflation. Yeah, uh, you can, that's right. You can hear it those sorts of things. And then, oh, lo and behold, a few years later, they lost their democracy and they're all like, how'd that happen here? That's my worry. That is my worry. If Obviously, the price of a hamburger, the price of milk, the, the price of gas is concerning. But what is what the, that is a short-term problem. The loss of a democracy will decimate everyone's freedom. Yes, your inability to eat is a short-term problem. I mean, I guess it probably is. The only problem is that there, you know, you might not have an opportunity for any problems after that if you're not able to eat. Uh, but I, I am, I have to say, I'm, I am begging all of you, absolutely begging you, especially on the left, to learn about something in history other than the Nazis. Not that you actually know anything about the Nazis or how they rose to power, of course. Your understanding of your one single historical period of interest is dubious at best. But, but it's really time to branch out anyway. It really is. Other things have happened in the world before and since, I promise you. There are other things that you could compare current events to. The possibilities for historical analogies are endless, but you have to read a history book first. In any event, I, I do appreciate Matthew Dowd's prudence and restraint. I'll give him credit for that because he says that he's not going to compare the GOP to Nazis. But all he's saying is that the GOP are just like the Nazis. He's not going to make the comparison. He's simply pointing out that Republicans are exactly like the Nazis. That's all. And you are ushering in the end of democracy if you vote for them. This is all preposterous, of course. Democracy is not under threat because of Republicans. But that is not to say that democracy isn't under threat at all. I mean, it is. And it's much more than democracy that hangs in the balance. The entirety of Western civilization is on the brink of collapse, is indeed in the process of collapsing. It's not because of one election or one political event. It's because we are, as a society, rejecting fundamental basic truth. Our civilizational flight from truth is the real threat to democracy, to civilization. 
You can't have a functioning democracy without truth. You can't have a thriving country or any real country at all without truth. You can only have chaos and misery. Which brings me to my event last night at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Um, yesterday, I told you about the drama and the lead up to the screening of, of my film and my speech and Q&A afterwards. Leftist students and faculty were losing their minds over the prospect of my physical presence on campus. They filed a bias incident report. They tore down flyers. They set up safe spaces. They graffitied all over the campus, uh, including vandalizing a veterans memorial. When I finally arrived on campus yesterday, over 300 protesters, apparently was the number, gathered outside. Uh, many tried to rush inside the building. Some made it in. Some were stopped. They rushed into the screening of the film. They tried to disrupt it. Uh, I'm told that one of the protesters literally vomited in, like out of rage. It's, it's actual, an actual scene from The Exorcist played out. During my talk, they repeatedly pulled the fire alarm, which had the effect of knocking the AV system out, so I didn't have a working microphone for a large portion of the speech. Fortunately, I have a loud enough voice, so that was only a minor inconvenience. Back outside, they ranted and raved incoherently, often, branch often branching into grievances that have seemingly nothing to do with the subject of my film or my talk. Here's just one example. Listen. And that includes an organizing spaces because so much of the time, organizing spaces are dominated by white people who don't give BIPOC voices a chance to speak. <laughs> That voice is hard to listen to. Uh, yes, people of color are not able to speak. She screams into a megaphone. Most of the speeches and chants were targeting me and explaining why I'm a horrible person. But the interesting thing about this girl is that she was at least partially targeting her own comrades. It doesn't take long for them to start to eat each other and eat other things too, actually. Um, as the protest grew, it also became more explicitly satanic there was one woman who pulled out a Bible and began ripping pages out of it and eating them. And we can see that, see her do that here. If you thought I was exaggerating when I call these people demonic, well, here you go. Um, I spoke yesterday about the helpful contrast, right, that you see with these when these leftist protesters show up. Here's another one. Which way will you go, America? That's the choice that you have. Which way, Western man? Do you want to join in with the side that eats the Bible and vomits in anger, kills babies, castrates little children? Or do you want to join literally any side but that one? I mean, this is the choice to be made. Sadly, though, up to this point, our civilization has made its choice. And it chose the Bible eaters. It chose these screaming, spastic lunatics. Fundamentally, it shows untruth. Because as I am constantly reminding everyone, this, this is what these people represent. It's what they advocate for. It's what they demand. It's why they protest. It's not merely about silencing conservative voices. It's not about squashing debate or discussion. It is all of that. But more importantly, it's about driving truth, even the most basic truths, especially the most basic truths, out of college campuses, out of all of our institutions, um, out of the public square, off of social media, off of all the platforms, and off into exile. Their goal is to build a society apart from truth. 
where they can make their own, their own truth and live in their relativistic utopia, one in which everything revolves around the self and around the ego. But we've seen how this utopia works. Specifically, we've seen that it doesn't. It doesn't work. A civilization grounded in relativism is not grounded at all. It is weak and unstable. It will collapse and it will take everything down with it, including democracy. That's what's at stake here. And that's why we may be tempted to laugh at these embarrassing displays on college campuses. I laugh at them. But what lies underneath all of the hysteria is this war on truth. These, these kids have been conditioned to lash out blindly, violently, with rage and fury at any discussion of truth, at any individual who speaks truth. That's why I'm doing all this, why I'm in the fight. I, I, I see this as a fight for truth itself and thus for civilization itself. To reiterate what I said at the end of my speech last night, if you'll forgive me plagiarizing myself, um, it really is as simple as this for me, that the truth matters. And it matters more than anything else. It matters more than ideology. It matters more than your preferences, your feelings. It matters more than your self-identification. It matters more than your life and more than mine. See, these leftist protesters, they claim that, that my speaking truth or anyone else who speaks truth, that when we do that, we somehow put their lives at risk. Now, I don't think that's true. They were not putting their lives at risk by speaking the truth. But even if it was, I would still speak it. And I would still encourage you to speak it. The truth would be worth the cost. Be worth the cost of their lives. It's worth the cost of my own life. I would speak the truth if it put my own life at risk. And according to the death threats that I get all the time, it does. And that's because life itself can't have any meaning, nothing can have meaning apart from the truth. There's nothing to fight for except the truth, nothing to live for except the truth. There is no love without it. There's no beauty. There's no joy. There's no uh, freedom. There's nothing without truth. And that's why we can't give it up for anyone's sake, no matter what. Now let's get to our five headlines. Uh, well, there's one other clip I wanted to play from last night before we move on, and uh, I wish I could play the whole exchange, but it, it's it's too long. Uh, I have a, a kind of a longer clip that I'm going to play it still, but you can find the whole clip on my my Twitter page. It's uh, a during the Q and A, a person who identifies as trans, who's going through transition right now, did come up to speak in the Q and A, and and this is doesn't happen very often. This is pretty rare. I mean, I do these Q&As and anyone can come speak and I'm always encouraging people don't agree with me to come speak and very rarely do they take me up on it. They'd rather go uh, stay outside where they have their numbers and they can shout into megaphones and hold their signs and all of that. This was someone who actually came and, and spoke and, and stood up there and, uh, and I appreciate that. It, it takes courage. It takes guts to do that. Um, from, from, you know, from, from his perspective, this is like walking into the lion's den. This is behind enemy's territory. From his, we're not his enemies. But that's how he would see it. And so it takes guts to do this. So I thought this was an important conversation. I wanted to share um, a, a piece of it with you. Here it is. Eight months ago, I was diagnosed with gender dysphoria while I was inpatient here in UW-Madison. Um, I looked into the research and like talked to doctors. And through my uh, journey, I decided to explore medically transitioning 
you know, because it's shown to decrease suicidal ideation, stuff like that. Um, and since then, although I've had to deal with other issues such as transphobia and sexual assault, I've been more happier overall than I ever was before. And my question to you is, what specifically about medically transitioning do you think is so immoral that we should ignore the potential benefits? And why should I listen to you as somebody who's not a medical professional and has not experienced gender dysphoria? There's a dishonesty behind it. Dishonesty in the false promises that they make, which is that you can attain this image of uh, maleness or femaleness, or that you can actually become in some ways the, the opposite gender or sex, whatever words you want to use, which is a lie. It's not true. You never can. I think I can pass. And I, I have a horrible Adam's apple. My, my voice sounds like this. I still love myself. And there is always been money in making people happy. Like wearing nice clothes or good food, it does cost a lot of money. That's why I, I can't get surgeries that would make me a lot happier. Um, but the, but the so point of, but why, the point, why? But the point of medicine is not supposed to be to make you happy in the moment. That's not, that's not the objective of medicine. The objective of medicine is your overall wellness. It's about treating what is actually wrong. That's, that's medicine. And so if you are struggling to accept who, who you were born as, what your actual biological identity is, I have all the compassion in the world for that. I mean, I, I can't imagine having that disconnect in my head. It has to be a source of, of immense despair. But what I hate is the, is the medical professionals who, instead of helping you with that, and help, instead of helping you to accept who you really are and find joy and fulfillment in it, they're trying to make a quick buck. And they're selling you false promises. And they're telling you that this stuff is based on long-term studies. And they're lying to you because it's not. There have never been any reliable long-term studies on almost all of this stuff because the fact is that the medical industry only started doing this at such a large scale recently, so they couldn't have the data. They're pretending that they do. They're lying. And that's what I hate. That's, that's the immorality. Yeah, so like I said, that was a piece of it. That's kind of the beginning and the end, and then there's the, the middle two, which you can find on my, uh, you, you can find on YouTube, or you can find it on Twitter. Um, and I wanted to show that to you because, first of all, again, I just I appreciate the fact that somebody was actually willing to go and stand up there and ask a question. Um, and and also, I want to show that it's it's you know we have this idea that when you're talking to someone who actually is trans or actually identifies that way and is going through the whole process, that it's like we have to choose between being compassionate or being truthful. Those are two separate paths. Those are two different choices. That's the way it's presented. That's not the case. I think you can be compassionate and also um, say what is true, which is what I tried to do there. Now, if I have one regret, and this is not meant as a criticism of the audience, who are great. Uh, and, and really, all the audiences we've had on this tour have been, have been awesome, very supportive. And I appreciate them all very much. But I regret, in some ways, the applause for me at the end there. Not that it was inappropriate. It's just, you know, it's the audience's way of saying they agree. And, um, and it was not, it's not like a combative applause, but it's, uh, it's the nature of the forum. That's how it works in that kind of forum. And that's fine. But it does, 
you know, kind of makes it sound maybe at the end like a Matt Walsh destroys type of video. And that's not what it is. It's not what I intended. I certainly hope that the, the, the student, you know, didn't, that, that wasn't his takeaway. Um, it's not, this is not a matter of trying to debunk or embarrass someone, certainly. Um, I care about him. I do. Um, I, I care about these kids who are being taken advantage of. I know a lot of them hate my guts. They think that I'm a horrible person. I'm a monster. And I get that. That's how, the way they see it. That's okay. But I care about them. Um, that's, that's why I care about the issue. Is people like that who uh, are dealing with something, dealing with something real, but it's internal. It's, it's like something in his mind, something real. And if I had a chance to follow up with that student, I would tell him, first of all, that, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be okay. I know, I know he's suffering. I don't doubt that. I know it. Uh, but it's going to be okay. He is okay. There's nothing wrong with him physically. He says there that he, uh, he talks about he hates his Adam's apple and his voice. But there's nothing wrong with any of that. You know, that's, that's, that's him. That's who he is. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. That's who you are. There's nothing wrong with who you are. The, the trouble is, is when your mind is not able to reconcile with who you are or for whatever reason is not wanting to accept who you are. And so it's that struggle to accept. That, that is the fundamental issue that we need to try to address. As I'm, as I'm always saying, it is very much on our side, which is the side of, uh, of truth, is very much a message of actual self-acceptance, of real affirmation. All right. I want to play this clip for you that, because there's, there's so much that is contained in this clip. So much is, uh, is shown, is learned perhaps in this. CNN held a focus group with Trump supporters in Pennsylvania. And the goal, obviously, because it's a focus group with Trump supporters and it's on CNN, the goal is to embarrass them and to show that they're a bunch of ignoramuses. But it didn't work out that way. In fact, it kind of worked exactly the opposite way. Uh, the person who was trying to embarrass the Trump supporters only got embarrassed in the process. So I want to go through and watch a little bit of this. Let's see. Doug Mastriano was at the insurrection and he was photographed breaching one of the restricted areas. Is that okay? Which area? Because I saw a video where Capitol officers yes. were taking away barriers and unlocking Open doors. doors. People. So, yeah. I mean, I, they opened the gates. So and it let shouldn't them in. be disqualifying for an elected official no. No. if no, they participated in January 6th. He didn't, he didn't strike anybody. He didn't hurt anybody. Yeah, and the only one that died was a protester there, not a Capitol police. An unarmed officer. female veteran. Was That's the only one that died. That's well, the only one who died. A police officer did die. No. It was a, a stroke. That's not. That's, that's not, not on site. Caused by that, that's because right. he shouldn't have been a police officer. It was one woman. So, what do you him. make though overall of January six? I mean, it was watching that footage. It was pretty disturbing. I mean, there were people throwing excrement at the right, walls. Let's pause it there for a second. So, uh, she, she makes she pivots there. So, well, what do you make of January six in general? Because, because she realized that what she's telling what the claims that she's making about January 6th are incorrect. And these people know that it's incorrect. So what's happening here is that she's trying to showcase their ignorance. But instead, uh, 
In fact, they are educating her about January 6th. Uh, they, are, they are better educated on January 6th than she is. And she says this is a, a common bit of misinformation that we still hear somehow, is that uh, there were police officers who died on January 6th. Didn't happen. Did not happen. Um, there were no police officers killed by the, by the rioters on January 6th. That did not happen. There's Brian Sicknick who had a, a stroke, had a medical, you know, had a, had a medical emergency after the fact. And then there were, there, were, there were other police officers who in the weeks and months afterwards, there were, I think it was two, who tragically committed suicide and shamelessly for, you know, years now, it is, the, 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 the left has been, uh, has been t- taking those suicides and connecting it to January 6th with, without any evidence whatsoever. So these people know all of that. Because, well, how do they know it? Because they, although they're participating in a CNN uh, forum or a CNN you know, focus group, they don't, they don't rely on CNN to get their information. Really, the sense, rather than being a showcase of the ignorance of Trump voters, which is what CNN was hoping for, it is a showcase of, of among other things, CNN's own irrelevance. That these random voters that they picked up in uh, Pittsburgh, they don't, they don't, they're not looking at CNN for it. They don't care what CNN says. Uh, CNN has made itself irrelevant. So then she pivots to talking about January 6th in general. Let's keep watching this a little bit. There were people throwing excrement at the walls, and it was our, you know, it's the Capitol. It looked a lot like Antifa's actions. Except on a much smaller scale, it looked the same as the Black Lives Matter riots. That's what I saw, the similarities to being. Minneapolis burns, Kenosha burns. But so it's okay just because because one side that you disagree with? I'm saying Antifa infiltrated. It's good for one, it's good for the other. Anybody who harms anybody? Anybody who caused property destruction, that needs to be dealt with. Yeah, but if you're there making side. your voice heard at the right. people's house, no less, yeah. that, I, that's, again, it's a fundamental constitutional right of an American citizen. And people should not be being held political prisoner uh, because of it. For misdemeanors. That's I mean, East Germany. That's East Germany. Tactics. Yeah, that's what's scary. It was an actual fiery but mostly peaceful protest. And the other ones that were the office. Was the protest legitimate our, in your our eyes? Administration, because... I feel like, is using it as their Reichstag fire. Yeah. That's exactly what they're using it as. Mm-hmm. Do you think that President Trump could have quelled the violence that day? Not him personally. I don't no. think so, no. I don't think so. It started while he was still speaking. I was actually there. I, right. I, I was there. I'd love to see an hour-long focus group with this with this uh, this group of Americans here, these patriots, and a, a CNN anchor. You know what I actually want to see, though? What I would love to see is a group of Democrat voters focus group ask the same questions. Okay, but get some Democrat voters, get some leftists into a focus group, and start talking to them about January sixth. And I guarantee uh, there's going to be a whole lot more misinformation being spread. You know, because these are people who actually rely on the corporate media for their information. And uh, if we were to swap them out for leftists, we're going to hear all about how there was like a dozen police officers with a bloodbath, people lying dead all over the place. That's what we would hear. Of course, all the points that they make about uh, about compare, you know, what happened with BLM riots and Antifa, all totally valid. 
And the CNN reporter has no response to that other than to say, well, just, just because one person, so two wrongs don't make a right. Are you admitting that it was a wrong now? Because that would be something new for CNN. Are you admitting that the BLM riots were actually wrong? I don't think CNN, anyone at CNN has ever even admitted that. As opposed to on the right, right, with like this, this one single example that you have of people on the right rioting. And that's what it was. It was a riot. And these were mostly people who are on the right. And it's happened one time in like decades. Okay, as opposed to on the left when it's, I mean, we, we went through a, a season, we went through a, a period of a, we went through a season where it was happening on a daily basis. Um, but you got your one example and every conservative that I've ever talked to, we have no problem saying that was, that shouldn't have happened. That was incredibly stupid. That's it's a horrible decision. Okay. There was, I was saying it at the time, there's, there's nothing good can come of this for the people who are participating in it. There's, there's no good that comes of this none whatsoever. Now there's there's and in fact there's good for the left and for the the uh, for the elites and the powerful people in Washington. They're going to make hay of this, and that's exactly what they've done in the um, in the in the many months after following. It's a hundred percent true. It's always always shaded. You know, only our media and Papong Yang and Russia could write headlines like. Uncle Biden shaves the truth and it's part of his shtick. It makes him more accessible. It's a good thing. Under Trump, it was, we've done 1,000 fucking fact checks. That is the first, the, fa- the first slide I showed you today was the first fact check I ever saw on Biden. They, they just, they don't do them. <clears throat> because why would they? It's, it's no different then something that is going to seem far-fetched, but I saw it yesterday, and I wanted to cover it on the show because it really pissed me off. The way this was written about in the press, and I'll talk on the other side. Good restart by the 19, and that outside line as well. Big push by the 19, and he gets to the inside again. Three wide as they come out of two. Now, three wide isn't going to work through three and four. Sheldon Creed shoving the 19. He's sideways, but he lurches out front. The white flag one more time around. Jones gets tagged by the 54. Ty Gibbs out front. Jones around. Caution comes out. Ty Gibbs sees the checkered yellow flags. And Ty Gibbs put the bumper to the back of the 19, and that's the damage that happened after. Yes, they drive for the same organization. Joe Gibbs Racing. And the way they finished... It will be Allgaier that would advance to the championship four. 
It's one thing to get moved out of your way by your teammate. It's a whole other thing to get wrecked by him. I was thinking the same thing, and I feel on restarts, it's kind of open game, but coming with one lap to go to get absolutely turned around, it's going to be hard to swallow for the driver of the 19. Let's take a look, guys. Yeah, they get down into the breaking zone, and he just right into the back of the 19. No chance for Brandon to make the corner. I'm just not impressed. It doesn't take much of a race car driver to run another guy over from behind. It's one thing to hit him in the door or the quarter panel if it's contested, but this right here is squared up, bumper to bumper. Unimpressed. Hit him so hard it buckled the hood. Yeah, Ty Gibbs punted the 19 of Brandon Jones, and now he's going to celebrate in front of the crowd here. And this crowd is very educated, and we'll see what they think about what Ty Gibbs just did when he gets out of the car. Clearly by the dirt burnout, Ty is perfectly okay with it. Ty's okay with it. Let's it's the tires are coming. Now in short track racing, using the bumper to move a guy is very normal. But this kid we played months ago, if you paid attention to the show or you listen to me babble about NASCAR, he got moved by somebody. He rammed him twice on the track and then rammed him on pit road so bad the front of his car was smashed up. Then he beat his ass up while he was wearing his helmet. And the other kid had his helmet off. So in this race, they were both doing the bumper move to try to win. This was his teammate. The teammate was trying to make it to the final four where my Noah Gregson is going because he's got eight wins and 17 stage wins. And my God, I hope he wins next week. I hope my stomach holds up and I hope I don't freaking have a freaking meltdown trying to watch that race. And he got moved and he was going to lose. So he rammed him. You saw, I'm pretty sure we saw, did we see? Let me see. Good restart. I don't think we got. Let's see. Tires are coming completely apart on the 54 here. The crowd. Hey, race fans, thanks for watching our video for all NASCAR on. Well, I guess we didn't get. There, there's a. Let me try to find it. And now you hear the crowd responding. Party. The booze raining down from the fans at Martinsville. Ty Gibbs with a win, but a very controversial way to go about it. He actually waves on the booze. That was what fans thought. But by morning, because he's rich and his daddy owns a race team, love him or hate him, he creates a buzz. He is creating a buzz in NASCAR. It's good for NASCAR. And even in NASCAR, where nobody's in the stands, people aren't going, ratings are down, people aren't watching as much because of shit like that. And the other, the main league, you know, the big guys, the, the cars are horrible. They can't pass anybody. That's not what you hear. Every day you hear, this is great, so much buzz, this is going to be so awesome. People love this. And that's the media, which I know their whole purpose is to promote NASCAR, but facts are facts. Yesterday was the first time I heard a booth announcer say what the fans said, that that was not okay. But I knew as I went to bed last night, by morning, it would be written that Ty Gibbs is a great kid. He's got six wins. He's creating buzz. 
we can't live in a world of facts. They always say it's alternate facts and conservatives are so horrible. But when you really break it down, it's them twisting everything to make it benefit liberals, benefit the organization, the sport. When more than ever, Americans just want truth. No, when Biden took office, gas was not what it was even close to now. There was not inflation like there is now. He made these things happen with his policies. It would be said that way if he's a conservative, but he's a Democrat. No, right-wing rhetoric didn't make a liberal guy try to kill Nancy Pelosi. He was just a crazy guy with a hammer. And the whole story is fishy. No. Rittenhouse and the dude who killed people in Wisconsin are not remotely the same thing. One was not a racial attack, Rittenhouse. One was a racial attack, Darnell. But throughout this show, what did you see? The opposite. And all I can do as a normal dude in his basement who's sick as fuck and can't accept jobs because I got one, but I had to turn it down, is hope that we all eventually, regardless of what you believe you are politically, start rejecting both parties, all media, whether it's Fox or it's MD, MSDNC. No. That is not factual. And punish people for fucking lying. We do that in our personal life. You don't hang out with people who lie to you all the time. It's just something you don't do. Yet we tolerate it in the media landscape. So this wraps up another episode of Flower Politic Podcast. Please share this family as a friend. Go to foppodcast.com. We can find this video, audio, and all other video and audio. Make sure you disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah yeahs. We're going to look at a Wednesday show to November, year of our Lord, 2022. It's scary. It's already November. Until then, thank you for listening. I once again apologize for the lower energy. Just, man, it's, it's whatever it is. It ain't good. This These last two weeks have been really rough. So hopefully by Wednesday, something will change. So you all take care.